Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is the first of several that I'm calling The Long Road to Reform. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, we'll track the church's long march to the Reformation, then pause before picking it up with the Reformation by doing some episodes tracking church history into the East. Until recently, most treatments of the history of Christianity have focused almost exclusively on the church in Europe and what's often called Western Christianity. Mention is made of church growth into other regions like North Africa and Middle and the Far East, but it's barely a nod in that direction. For every 10,000 words devoted to the church in Europe, 10 are given to the Church of the East. What's sad is that this church has a rich history. Now, we're not going to make up for the lack of reporting on the history of the church in these regions, but we will seek to fill in some of the gaps and give those who are interested resources for learning more. Okay, here we go. We now embark on the long road to reform. At the dawn of the 13th century with Pope Innocent III, the papacy reached its zenith. The Dominicans and Franciscans carried the gospel far and wide. New universities were hotbeds of theological enterprise, and Gothic cathedrals seemed to defeat the law of gravity. Europe was united under the Pope and the Emperor, in theory at least. Because the Crusaders had taken Constantinople, the breach between East and West looked to have finally healed. It looked like Christendom was about to enter a golden age. But as is often the case, looks can be deceiving. These were. By 1261, the West influence in Constantinople was over, as well as the bogus union the Fourth Crusade claimed to have forged. Over the next two centuries, Europe saw several changes that set the scene for the modern world. One of the most important of those was in the realm of economics. When we think of the Middle Ages in Europe, we remember feudalism with its strict rules of class. There was the land-owning nobility and the commoners, serfs who worked the land for the nobles in exchange for protection. Now, we don't have time to go into it here, but feudalism was largely the result of developments in the technology of warfare. Armored warriors, called knights, were expensive. It took a vast economic base to field them, so serfs worked lands in exchange for protection by knights. These serfs gave loyalty, called fealty, to nobles in ever higher levels from counts and barons to dukes and earls, with the king at the top. The third class in this tiered structure of medieval society were the clergy. The church also owned lands and had serfs who worked for them. This made priests and abbots responsible for the secular rule of church and monastery estates. But toward the end of the Middle Ages, the cities of Europe began to grow, and a new class of commoner emerged, the merchant. Now, there were several reasons for the proliferation of merchants and the growth of villages into towns and then towns into cities. One of the most important was the boom in trade. The Crusades had stimulated Europe's taste for new things. Someone needed to buy up what Europe produced, which was a lot of wool, and take it to the east where all the goodies were. Increased trade meant increased wealth for merchants, who weren't landowners, but who did buy themselves nice homes in the ever-growing cities. Those houses needed furniture and art and all the other luxuries that marked a successful merchant, so industries popped up to supply those wants, bringing even more people to the cities. New credit systems were developed, as extra money meant people looking to invest for a profit. 
and slowly but surely a new social class developed, the middle class, who didn't fit the strict class structure that had dominated Europe for several hundred years. When nobles began taxing the trade that was crossing their land, the merchants protested and called for a stronger central government that would rein in those nobles. A king could protect trade, quash the bandits that harassed caravans, establish a common currency, and put an end to the silly conflicts that disrupted trade. Kings saw the merchants and emerging middle class that supported them as a way to do an end run around the nobles who so often gave them grief. The king didn't have to depend now on those nobles to supply knights and men-at-arms. From the taxes raised from the middle class, they could fill their own army. The growth of strong kings during the Middle Ages in Europe goes hand-in-hand with the rising middle class, and it's out of this process that the modern nations of Europe emerged. Regions that shared a common language and culture coalesced around strong central governments. So, nationalism became one of the factors that will lead to the problems for the church. Until the 13th century, Europeans identified themselves by their own town or city or county, but by the 15th century, they identified themselves as English, French, Swedish. Where this emerging nationalism affected the church was when a pope leaned in his policies towards this kingdom or that nation. When he did, that nation or this kingdom ignored his rule. And this led to the overall denigration of the pope's office and authority. That, in turn, led to a not few looking to someone other than the pope to lead in the much-needed reform of the church. What's often neglected in a discussion of the roots of the Reformation is the impact of the Hundred Years' War on church history. Lasting almost 140 years, from 1337 to 1475, the war dragged in almost all of Europe at one point or another. Now, it was basically a conflict between France and England, but it lasted so long and was filled with such intrigues that everyone seemed to want to weigh in at some point and take a few swings at the other guy. It was during the Hundred Years' War that a French teenager named Joan had visions that stirred her countrymen to rally behind the French prince and give the British a good run for their money. Actually, money was the perennial British problem in this war. They'd win amazing victories on the battlefield at places like Crichy or Agincourt and then have to withdraw for a lack of funds. This long conflict with all its many chapters had enormous consequences for the church. It was during this time that the so-called Babylonian captivity of the papacy took place, with the popes relocating from Rome to the French city of Avignon. Popes became virtual puppets of the French throne. So, the English disregarded the papacy. Then, during the Great Papal Schism, when two rival popes vied for control of the church, Europeans aligned under whichever pope supported their cause in the war. That made putting the schism to an end even more difficult. All of this, of course, weakened the claims of the pope to universal authority. And what are we to say of the plague that devastated whole regions of the continent? The Little Ice Age of the 14th century set crop prices back and led to a virtual famine in some places. This in turn shattered the fragile economy and set those already living hand-to-mouth in a physically vulnerable position. Their immune systems were degraded so that when the plague arrived, hundreds of thousands were susceptible to its ravages. Between 1348 and 50, the Black Death swept Europe. While numbers vary, with a general account of about a third of the Europeans dying, there were some regions where as many as half the population succumbed. 
Now, just imagine what that did to the social fabric of these places. Imagine what it would be like living where you do with only half the people. For some of you living in an urban center, that may sound like a dream come true at first, but realize that half of those who die are the only ones with the know-how or the skill to do a good part of the work that keeps your system running. Half the houses are empty, half the stores are closed. You get the idea. The plague sent a shockwave through the collective conscience of Europe. How could a society so dominated by Christianity have suffered such a devastation? Maybe the church had gone astray so badly that God's wrath was in evidence. Could the Black Death be his way of cleaning house? While life had always been precarious, death now hovered over all, so life became little more than preparation for life after death. Pilgrimages to Rome and Jerusalem were sought. The poor who couldn't make such long journeys went on local pilgrimages to closer holy spots. Trade in relics boomed, even though the Fourth Lateran Council had tried to put the kibosh on it. In the mid-15th century, when it was clear that the Turks were determined to take Constantinople, the Byzantine emperors appealed to the West for help, even though the Fourth Crusade had been a colossal failure. In trade for their hope for assistance, the popes required the East to affirm their loyalty to Rome. Under threat of imminent demise, the East agreed to terms at the Council of Ferrara in 1439. But the Pope wasn't able to persuade the knights and armies of Europe to go to the aid of Constantinople. In the East, many of the Christians there saw the emperors bowing to Rome as a capitulation to heresy. They refused to fight for him or his cause. In 1443, the patriarchs of Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem rejected the council's decisions and broke communion with Constantinople. In 1452, after more than 400 years of animosity, a Roman mass was finally celebrated in the Hagia Sophia. But Constantinople's days were numbered. Just a year later, Mohammed II laid siege to the city. His new guns punched holes in those once impregnable walls. Emperor Constantine XI died defending his city. The great Hagia Sophia became a mosque, and the city was renamed Istanbul. It was King Philip IV of France who managed to wrap the papacy tightly around his finger. His long contest with Pope Boniface VIII is what helped lead to the Avignon Papacy and the Great Papal Schism. The next pope was Benedict XI a Dominican of genuine piety who sought to undo the acrimony that Boniface had managed to stir up across Italy and France. Despite Benedict's attempts at harmony, King Philip insisted on calling a council to condemn the acts of Boniface. Benedict refused, as it would be yet another denigration of papal authority at the hands of the French monarch. But this wasn't enough for the conservatives who regarded Benedict's rec reconciliatory acts as giving away too, way too much of the papal mojo. He died after only a year as pope. A rumor spread that he'd been poisoned, both sides claiming the other had done the deed. And by both sides, I mean those French cardinals who backed Philip and the Italian, German, and English cardinals who backed Rome. Except for those who didn't. Yeah, I know, it gets confusing. Welcome to church history. Through a clever bit of subterfuge, the French cardinals wrangled an agreement to elect Clement V. Clement seemed to be a neutral candidate, when he'd in fact been scheming with the French all along. During his term as Pope, from 1305 to 14, he never visited Rome even once. He appointed 24 cardinals, all but one of them French, ensuring that the next several popes would also be pro-French. 
Several of these cardinals were his relatives, while Clement V's pap while Clement V's papacy was abysmal, probably the most shameful moment was his consent to the destruction of the Templars. The Templars were one of the military orders that were founded during the Crusades, but since the Crusades were over, the Templars were really rather obsolete. Still, they were incredibly wealthy and powerful. This was at a time when King Philip was on a campaign to assert his absolute dominance over all French nobility. The Templars were an obstacle to overcome as they provided both funds and arms to the very nobles that Philip wanted to subjugate. And he also owed the Templars a considerable sum from loans that he'd taken from them. So, in a fascinating tale of intrigue, Philip persuaded others to do his dirty work for him. He had the Templars accused of disgusting crimes, besides the more pedantic evil of heresy. Under torture, some of the Templar leaders confessed, including their Grand Master, Jacques de Molay. De Molay later recanted his confession, saying that it was only due to the torture that he had experienced, but it was too late. He and a companion were executed. The Templars were disbanded, their wealth confiscated by the French crown. We'll pick it up at this point next time. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.